Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. I'm really excited for this piece. What do you know about YouTube? So good! Did you know that one billion hours of video are watched on it every day? And that it's the most used social network in America. But the site is under increasing scrutiny for objectionable content. White lives matter. Like white supremacy and political misinformation. We have been working really hard to figure out what's the right way to balance responsibility uh, with freedom of speech. With the days getting shorter and temperatures colder, it's sobering to think that on any given night, more than half a million Americans are homeless. We went to Seattle to see how the city is dealing with homelessness and to find out why so many of its citizens are on the streets. Given the work you do, I think most people would think, well, that's a job that one can live off. Yeah, I think a lot of people are shocked when they find out that I work full time. Hey, Larry. It's not easy to get to. But for centuries, Pilgrims have made their way to a place where faith, mystery, and miracles coexist. The story of these 11 Ethiopian churches, each carved from a single block of stone, with no brick, no mortar, nor wood, is a creation story you'll need to see to believe. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Nora O'Donnell. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. 
Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. To grasp the phenomenal scale of YouTube, consider that people spend 1 billion hours watching videos on it every day. It's the most used social network in the U.S. More queries are typed into the website search bar than anywhere online except Google, which owns YouTube. But the site has come under increasing scrutiny, accused of propagating white supremacy, peddling conspiracies, and profiting from it all. They recently agreed to pay a record $170 million to settle allegations that they targeted children with ads. YouTube is being forced to concentrate on cleansing the site. We visited the company's headquarters in San Bruno, California, to meet Susan Wojcicki, the 51-year-old CEO in charge of nurturing the site's creativity, taming the hate, and handling the chaos. We have 500 hours of video uploaded every single minute to YouTube. Say that again. So we have 500 hours of video uploaded every minute to YouTube. That is breathtaking. It is. It is. We have a lot of video. And a lot of influence on our lives and how we pass our time. Riding on a horse. Over a billion people listen to music on YouTube every month. It's the planet's top music site. There's a children's channel with over 44 billion views. Do you let your children watch YouTube, including the young ones? So I allow my younger kids to use YouTube Kids, but I limit the amount of time that they're on it. Um, I think too much of anything is not a good thing, but there's a lot you can learn on YouTube. I think about how YouTube in many ways is this global library. You want to see any historical speech? Um, you could see it. You want to be able to um, learn a language. Um, Make a souffle. Different. You want to laugh. You just want to see something funny. You want to do a souffle. Oh, yeah, cooking. Cooking's a great example. Who's watching people binge eat? With the subject Ukraine. A growing number of American adults are turning to it for their news, sports, medical information. It's now mankind's largest how-to collection. Take the thick end. How to tie a tie, tie the knot, or speak tie. The site has produced whole new pastimes where millions watch strangers open boxes. Hold your phone like that. Whisper. Sleep. YouTube's artificial intelligence algorithms keep recommending new videos so users watch more and more and more. Happy Friday! Wojcicki invited us to the weekly all-staff meeting. She's surprisingly down-to-earth for one of the most powerful people in Silicon Valley. And of course we had to have fun. Where her trajectory started in an unlikely way. I owned a garage and I was worried about covering the mortgage. So I was willing to rent my garage to any student. But then two students appeared. One was named Sergey Brin. The other was named Larry Page. They are the founders of Google. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> but at the time, they were just students. They looked like any other students. 
Larry and Sergey ended up hiring her as their first marketing manager. She was Google employee 16. As the company grew, so did her role, and so did her family. She has five children. Google bought YouTube on her recommendation for over $1.6 billion, and eight years later she became CEO with a mandate to make it grow and make it profitable. And she did. Its estimated worth is $160 billion. Find your solution at Shop. YouTube makes most of its money from ads. Hello, let's do this. Splitting revenue with people who create all kinds of videos. Instead of acrylic paint, you're going to be using enamel paint. From do-it-yourself lessons. Then it goes, ta-ta-ta. To hip-hop lessons. Clicking here. The more popular ones can become multi-million dollar entrepreneurs. Joe Biden promised Ukraine a billion dollars if they fired the prosecutor investigating his son's company. YouTube also makes money from political ads, a thorny issue because some of them have been used to spread lies on social media. Facebook is facing a lot of controversy because it refuses to take down a President Trump ad about Biden, which is not true. Would you run that ad? So that is an ad that um, right now would not be a violation of our policies. Is it on YouTube right now? Um, It has been on YouTube. Can a politician lie on YouTube? For every single video, I think it's really important to look at it. Politicians are always accusing their opponents of lying. That said, it's not okay to have technically manipulated content that um, would be misleading. For example, there was a video uploaded of Nancy Pelosi. It was slowed down just enough that it was unclear whether or not she was in her full capacity because she was speaking in a slower voice. Why would I work with you if you're investigating me? The title of the video actually said drunk, had that in the title. Um, And we removed that video. How fast did you remove it? Very fast. But not completely. We just did a search, and there it was, still available. The company keeps trying to erase the purported name of the impeachment whistleblower, but that, too, is still there, which raises doubts about their system's ability to cleanse the site. In the 2016 election cycle, YouTube failed to detect Russian trolls who posted over 1,100 videos, almost all meant to influence African Americans, like this video. And please don't vote for Hillary Clinton. She's not our candidate. She's a old racist bitch. YouTube is an open platform, meaning anyone can upload a video. And so the site has been used to spread disinformation, vile conspiracies, and hate. This past March, a white supremacist live-streamed his killing of dozens of Muslims in Christchurch, New Zealand. He used Facebook, but for the next 24 hours, copies of that footage were uploaded on YouTube tens of thousands of times. This event was unique because it was really a made-for-internet type of crisis. Every second there was a new upload. Um, And so our teams around the world we're working on this to remove this content. We had just never seen such a huge volume. I can only imagine when you became CEO of YouTube Mm -hmm. that you thought, oh, this is going to be so fun. It's (laughs) people are uploading wonderful things like... Funny cat videos. And look at what we're talking about here. Are you worried 
that these dark things are beginning to define YouTube? I think it's incredibly important that we have a responsibility framework. And that has been my number one priority. We're removing content that violates our policies. Um, we removed, just in the last quarter, 9 million videos. You recently tightened your policy on hate speech. Mm-hmm. Why'd you wait so long? Well, you know, we did, we have had hate policies since the very beginning of YouTube. Um, but pretty we, ineffective. What we really had to do was we had to tighten our enforcement of that to make sure that we were, uh, that we were catching everything. And we use a combination of people and machines. So Google as a whole has about 10,000 people that are focused on controversial content. I'm told that it is very stressful. Mm-hmm to be looking at these questionable videos all the time and that there's actually counselors to make sure that there aren't mental problems for the people Mm -hmm. who are doing this work. Is that true? It's a very important area for us. We try to do everything we can to make sure that this is a a good work environment. Um, Our reviewers work five hours of the eight hours reviewing videos. They have the opportunity to take a break whenever they want. I also heard that these monitors, reviewers... Sometimes they're beginning to buy the conspiracy theories. I've definitely heard about that. And we work really hard with all of our reviewers to make sure that, you know, we're providing the right services for them. Susan Mojiski showed us two examples of how hard it is to determine what's too hateful or violent to stay on the site. So this is a really hard video to watch. Um, And as you can see, these are these are prisoners um, in Syria. So you could look at it and say, well, should this be removed because it shows violence? It's graphic, but it's actually uploaded by a group that is trying to expose the violence. So she left it up. Then she showed us this World War Two video. I mean, it's totally historical footage that you would see on the History Channel. But she took it down. Why? There is this word down here that you'll see, 1418. 1418 is code used by white supremacists to identify one another. For every area, we work with experts, and we know all the hand signals, the messaging, the flags, the songs. And so there's quite a lot of context that goes into every single video to be able to understand what are they really trying to say with this video. Seeing how we're being used. The struggle for Wojcicki is policing the site while keeping YouTube an open platform. You can go too far, and that can become censorship. And so we have been working really hard to figure out what's the right way to balance responsibility uh, with freedom of speech. But the private sector is not legally beholden to the First Amendment. You're not operating under some freedom of speech mandate. You get to pick. We do, but we think there's a lot of benefit from being able to hear from groups and underrepresented groups that otherwise we never would have heard from with name-calling of Nazi or propagandists. But that means hearing from people with odious messages about gays. Mr. Let's be queer from Vox. Women. Sex robot. And immigrants. I think the easiest way for Mexicans to not get shot and killed in Walmart is... Wojcicki explained that videos are allowed as long as they don't cause harm. But her definition of harm can seem narrow. So if you're saying don't hire somebody because of their race, that's discrimination. 
Um, and so that would be an example of something that would be a violation against our policies. But if you just said white people are superior by itself, that's okay. And nothing else. Yes. But that is harmful and that it gives white extremists a platform to indoctrinate. We want a flourishing, healthy white race. And what about medical quackery on the site, like turmeric can reverse cancer? Bleach cures autism. Vaccines cause autism. Once you watch one of these, YouTube's algorithms might recommend you watch similar content. But no matter how harmful or untruthful, YouTube can't be held liable for any content due to a legal protection called Section 230. The law under 230 does not hold you responsible for user-generated content. But in that you recommend things, sometimes a thousand times, sometimes 5,000 times, shouldn't you be held responsible for that material? Because you recommend it. Well, our, our systems wouldn't work without recommending. And I'm so not if, saying don't recommend. I'm just saying be, be responsible for when you recommend so many times. If we were held liable for every single piece of content that we recommended, we would have to review it. That would mean there'd be a much smaller set of information that people would be finding much, much smaller. She told us that earlier this year, YouTube started reprogramming its algorithms in the U.S. to recommend questionable videos much less and point users who search for that kind of material to authoritative sources like news clips. With these changes, Wojcicki says they have cut down the amount of time Americans watch controversial content by 70 percent. Would you be able to say to the public, we are confident we can police our site. YouTube is always going to be different than something like traditional media, where every single piece of content is produced and reviewed. We have an open platform, but I know I can make it better, and that's why I'm here. With the days getting shorter and the temperatures colder, it's sobering to think that on any given night, more than half a million Americans are homeless. In the last three years, according to government reports, cities on the West Coast have seen a dramatic rise in the number of people who are unsheltered. That's the term used to refer to anyone who's homeless but not sleeping in a shelter. They're the people you see sleeping on streets or in parks, in tent encampments or in vehicles. Why has the unsheltered population been going up at a time of economic expansion and low unemployment? One answer is rising rents in hot real estate markets. Take Seattle and surrounding King County, which are booming thanks to high-tech companies, but now have the third highest number of homeless people in the country. The Seattle area is home to Amazon and Microsoft, but also to a homeless encampment called Tent City 3. In the shadow of Interstate 5 in Seattle, on a vacant strip of public land, this is Tent City 3. There are about 50 people living here without heat or running water. That's Ethan Wood. He's celebrating his third birthday. He's lived in a tent for the past year and a half. His parents, Trisha and Josiah, told us Ethan has an enlarged heart and suffers from bouts of asthma and croup so severe they've had to take him to the emergency room several times. Last winter, one of Seattle's coldest in recent memory, Ethan was sleeping in a tent covered with blankets sandwiched between his parents for warmth. 
Did you ever think, well, this is not the place we should have our child? We don't want our son here. We don't want to be here. But as of right now, this is the safest place for us. Absolutely. Because we know the people, we know the rules, and... Our family uh, gets to stay together. And our family stays together. Drug addiction is what led the Woods to become homeless. For Josiah, it was meth. For Trisha, heroin. They were living in Alaska at the time. Josiah's parents took care of Ethan while they both got treatment. Trisha came to Seattle for rehab and afterwards decided it was a good city for a fresh start. They say they haven't used drugs in nearly two years, but it's been hard to find housing. In May 2018, they tried to get a spot in one of Seattle's family shelters, but there was no room. They didn't want to split up into separate shelters, one for men and another for women with children, so they found their way to Tent City 3 and decided to stay. This is one of several makeshift encampments in Seattle that are allowed by the city. All those in favor for Decisions are made by camp residents who are also required to do chores and take turns guarding the tents. But about every three months, all the residents in Tent City 3 agree to pack up and move to a new location. It's an arrangement they make with the landowners who let them pitch their tents. No one wants a camp of homeless people in their neighborhood for very long. When we visited Ethan and his parents in September, they had just packed up their tent near the highway and were setting up in a church pastor's backyard. It was the eighth time they've had to move in the past year and a half. Someone we talked to said that it's a lot of work being homeless. It is. People don't realize that. It is a ton of work being homeless. Explain. We go to a downtown place called Urban Rest Stop for a shower and laundry. How far away is that? From here, it's a 45-minute... 45-minute bus ride. Yes. You take a... 45-minute bus ride in order to go take a shower. Just to go and take a shower. And then wait maybe for 45 minutes to an hour and a half to take that shower. You know, nobody ever plans to live in a tent. Ever. So You never thought... We never thought we'd never. be here. Until something hits you so hard that it just sweeps your feet out from underneath you completely, you can't prepare for it. I used to be one of those people that thought that if anyone was homeless, they just needed to go get a job. That would solve their homeless problems. How would you answer that question now? Why can't they just get a job? Oh, my goodness. Maybe they have a job. Josiah Wood has a full-time job. He gets up before dawn and takes mass transit to work as a maintenance supervisor at the Hard Rock Cafe downtown. Though he makes $19.50 an hour, the rent for an average one-bedroom apartment in Seattle would eat up half his salary. He and Tricia say they've been saving up money so they can afford a security deposit and monthly rent. How long do you think you'll keep living in the tent city? I would hope we're out of here by winter. We will be out of here by winter. I'm not going to allow my family to suffer again in the winter. Emily Broll also lives in Seattle. She's been delivering mail for the U.S. Postal Service for nearly five years. Hey, Larry. In her uniform, you'd never know she, too, is unsheltered. She lives in a rickety old RV parked by the side of the road, which meets the government's definition of homelessness. More than 2,000 people in the Seattle-King County area live in some kind of vehicle. Emily Broll's Dodge Commander is 42 years old. Why are you living in an RV? Because rent is obscene here. Mm. Um, I can't afford it. I just think I'm working the butt off, and I don't want to just spend all of my money paycheck to paycheck just to survive. Given the work you do, I think most people would think, well, that's a job that one can live off. Yeah. 
I think a lot of people are shocked when they find out that I'm I work full time. And what's the solution here? Um, affordable housing. Build it. Quit selling out to developers. Housing prices in Seattle skyrocketed more than 60% over the last five years as high-tech companies expanded or moved in. Jeff Gold was unable to pay the rent on his apartment and was evicted nearly six years ago. When we met him in August, he just started a new job as a database coordinator. He was 58 years old and a graduate of the University of Illinois. This is where Jeff was sleeping, beside a church on a sheet of cardboard. Each morning, he gathered his few possessions, stuffed them in a plastic bag, and stored them in a friend's truck. Then he headed for work at the Environmental Protection Agency. Do people at work know that you're homeless? No. I had a meeting with my boss yesterday, and I thought long and hard, like, there was a moment where, like, should I come out? During our interview, Jeff smelled of liquor. And by his bed, there were empty bottles of vodka. A step up, he says, from the alcohol he normally would buy with food stamps. How do you get alcohol with food stamps? Cooking sherry. It's the only you can al- get cooking sherry. It's the only alcohol you can buy on food stamps. Do you think you have an addiction issue with alcohol? Oh, I'm definitely an alcoholic. Have you tried to stop? Or do you want to stop? No. For me, I, I pretty much have it under control in the sense that, like I guess I get to work every morning. I mean, you're sleeping outside on rocks with your possessions in a bag. So it's not all under control. I'm moving forward. Mm-hmm. Okay. I got paid a couple days ago. In all, there are about 11,000 homeless people in the Seattle King County area, according to the latest government count. They make up roughly 1% of the city's population, But last year, they accounted for nearly 20% of those arrested and jailed, mostly for nonviolent offenses, ranging from theft and loitering to drug violations. If property crime is committed, violence is committed, you need to call 911 and the police... At this city council meeting last year, it became clear many residents have had enough. We're sick of it. It's out of control. Ari Hoffman is a Seattle businessman and a former candidate for city council. When you're coming to coach baseball like I do, and you have to clean needles off the fields. You actually have to clean needles off the fields? Oh, sure. And there's sometimes people sleeping in the dugouts. What do you think is to blame for it? You need to stop talking about it like it's a housing affordability issue and start talking about it like it's a drug problem. Seattle, 10 years ago, didn't have this level of homelessness. Where were these people then? They haven't changed. These folks have been here. Dennis Colhane, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, has been researching homelessness for 35 years. He doesn't believe drug addiction and mental illness explain why there's been a recent rise in the number of unsheltered people. Why is this happening? The best evidence we have is that it's the real estate market. You have a lot of wealthier individuals, especially in places like Seattle, who are driving up the price of housing, and there's just not enough housing to filter down to the lower-income people. What about substance abuse, alcoholism, drug abuse? Substance abuse is particularly important for the people who are homeless for a longer period of time. It's much harder to get out if you have an addiction issue. Professor Colhane says most people who become homeless in America are able to get out of it within a few months. But the more than 20% who remain homeless for a year or more are often the most visible. And the vast majority of them do suffer from mental illness or drug or alcohol addiction. 
there is hope. We've seen things that actually reduce the number of people experiencing homelessness. But every person takes time, um, and you have to have a strategy for that person. Jenny Durkin is the mayor of Seattle. She says the city has added more than 500 shelter spots, taken down more than 1,000 illegal encampments, and secured funding for 5,000 new affordable housing units over the next three years. The city has also created what they call enhanced shelters that try to help people find permanent housing. And Mayor Durkin is looking for ways to stem the flow of new people who are becoming homeless. Too many people come right out of the criminal justice system into homelessness. And so if you work with the hospitals, the jails, the prisons, foster care system and say, let's make sure people have shelter or housing before they go. Do you actually feel that the city has a grip on this problem? I think we know what works. And I count 12 people homeless right outside City Hall right now. If the city knows what works, why are there still so many homeless people out there? Because it's so complex, there's no one city in America that's going to fix this. This has got to be both a regional and statewide and federal answer. Nationwide, there have been successes. Since the federal government committed money for housing subsidies and supportive social services for veterans, the number of homeless veterans has gone down 50 percent in the last 10 years. In June, President Trump signed an executive order creating a council to come up with ways to cut down on regulations that make it expensive to build affordable housing. But the federal government has not allocated enough housing money to keep up with the crisis. Amazon and its founder Jeff Bezos have committed more than $300 million to help the homeless in Seattle and other parts of the country. Apple has pledged $2.5 billion in California. But Professor Dennis Culhane says private donations will only go so far. A billion dollars sounds like a lot, but to solve the housing affordability gap is about a $30 billion requirement. And that's every year. Just for housing subsidies. Just for housing subsidies. But I should note that we spend about $12 billion a year just on the emergency shelter system, okay, which isn't solving people's homelessness. And even with that expenditure, you know, a third of the people still have no place to sleep. The total number of homeless people in Seattle and King County went down by 8% this year, according to the city. But there are still more than 5,000 people unsheltered in one of the wealthiest metropolitan areas in the country. Last we heard from Jeff Gold, he'd been fired from his job at the EPA because of poor attendance. Postal worker Emily Broll has decided to leave Seattle and her RV for a place where housing is more affordable. And three-year-old Ethan Wood, he and his parents are still living in Tent City 3. They seem no closer to finding a home before winter. Nobody really wants to rent to someone who's lived in a tent for the past year, regardless of how well of a fit we would be for them. We have absolutely made mistakes in our lives, but that doesn't mean that we don't deserve to raise our family in a house that we can afford. We are more than willing to pay for it. We just need someone to give us a chance to do it. If faith is a mystery... There are few places in the Christian world where the mystery is deeper than in Lalabella. 800 years ago, an Ethiopian king ordered a new capital for Christians. At 8,000 feet on the central plateau of Ethiopia stand 11 churches, 
each carved from a single gigantic block of stone. No bricks, no mortar, no concrete, no lumber, just rock sculpted into architecture. Not much is known about who built them or why, but the faithful of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church say there's no mystery, really. The churches of Lalabella were built by angels. The northern highlands of Ethiopia rose 31 million years ago when fissures in the earth flooded the Horn of Africa with lava a mile deep. On hillsides, you can still see columns of lava frozen in time. Iron made the basalt red, and gases trapped inside made the stone light, as light and pliable as air. Christians laid their mark on Ethiopia before the year 400. They found the ancient stone welcomed the bite of a chisel. The churches were carved around the year 1200 by people called the Zagwe. Their king, Lalabella, is said to have traveled the 1,600 miles to Jerusalem. Legend has it, when he returned and Jerusalem fell to the Islamic conquest, Lalabella ordered a new home for Christianity. And he came back with an ambitious idea or vision of creating an African Jerusalem, a black Jerusalem here in the highlands of Ethiopia. Fazil Georgis is an Ethiopian architect and historian who walked us through the Rock of Ages. Well, there are three groups of churches, and each group is interconnected within itself. We're sitting in St. Mary's Church. Yes. How was it built? Well, uh, it was built starting from outside. They formed the shape, and then they start digging, or let's say excavating downwards. So they dug essentially a trench around the whole perimeter, yes. which left them with a giant cube of solid rock. Exactly. And then they carved their doors, and in they went? In they went. Chipping inside largely in darkness, artists sculpted many rooms with no room for error. Archways, vaults, and columns imitate traditional construction, even though in solid rock there's no need to hold up the ceiling. The enduring mystery is why. Why did King Lalabella attempt the seemingly impossible when easier building techniques were known? As the story goes, he was helped by angels. Yes. Who worked on the project overnight. I think I would rather take this as a symbolic thing. Because, Do you uh, not have any experience working with angels in architecture? <laughs> well, I, I, I get inspiration from angels. <laughs> the site of the 11 churches covers about 62 acres. It's divided by a stream King Lalabella christened the River Jordan. The largest church covers around 8,000 square feet. Each is about four stories tall. But their most astounding dimension cannot be measured. It is the length to which they summon adoration. This is considered to be a holy place. That coming here as a devout Christian is a very strong sign of their belief. Some people travel hundreds of kilometers to get here on foot. On foot, and they have been doing it for several centuries. 
The churches are open for worship year-round, but we were there Christmas Eve when nearly 200,000 pilgrims rose to heaven on a path descending into the earth. Many walked for days or weeks, fasting, robed in white, an ordeal that is rinsed from the disciples in the tradition of Jesus. Any Ethiopian over the age of 30 cannot forget the suffering of drought and war and a million people lost to starvation. And so, having known poverty in this life, they've invested their souls in the next. Tawalda Yigzau told us, I believe God is here. I came with faith. Her neighbor, Gaitie Ababao, and his daughter told us they walked from their farms nearly a hundred miles away, a journey of three days. God can hear your prayers anywhere. Why did you feel you had to be here? To come in. So that God can see our devotion, she said, and our dedication. We were very tired, he said. We were falling and getting back up throughout the journey, all to see the celebration here. And God will recognize our effort. The Christmas celebration Ethiopians call Gena compresses them shoulder to shoulder to fast and chant and praise all night till dawn brings Christmas Day. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church claims to be among the earliest capitals of Christianity thanks to a mysterious figure of the Hebrew Bible. The faithful believe that the Queen of Sheba left Ethiopia, went to Jerusalem where she met King Solomon. From that meeting came a son. And when the son was an adult, he returned to Ethiopia with 12,000 Israelites and the Ark of the Covenant containing the tablets with the Word of God, the Ten Commandments. And the Ark remains in Ethiopia, according to the priests of the Orthodox Church. We met Tage Saleh Mazgabu, the head priest of Lalabella, at the Church of St. George, which was last to be built and judged to be the masterpiece. I met a woman on Christmas Day who had spent three days walking here. Who are these pilgrims? These are believers, he told us. Not just three days, even three months sometimes. When there was no air travel or buses, people used to travel from various parts of the country for months to come here and celebrate with us. The celebration beats to the rhythm of ancient instruments. The cabero, double-headed drum, and a rattle called the sistrum, whose sound was known in North Africa 3,000 years before Jesus. On Christmas Eve, we watched you and your priests lead the chant all night long. What are you saying in that chant? We tell the people that God became human and a human became God. Because of Christ, we went from being punished by God to being his children again. Christmas 
is the day that forgiveness was born. But while God forgives, time does not. After eight centuries, the basalt basilicas are weary of wind and water. What's absolutely clear is that something quite miraculous happened here. Stephen Battle is an architect with the World Monuments Fund, who told us Lalabella's miracle is being undermined because the rock is not rock solid. When you're building a conventional building, you go to a quarry and um, you'll have different grades of stone and you try and select the best stone and you leave the bad stuff behind. When you're carving a, a, a church out of the mountainside, you don't have that luxury. And so typically in any one of the churches here, you get good stone. And a lot of it is good stone. But then you also get actually bad stone and actually very bad stone, which is really very soft indeed. And, and over time, if you touch it, it actually crumbles. And this is one of the most sacred parts of Lalibella. We saw the good and the bad in the chamber where King Lalibella is laid to rest. This is one of the best preserved sculptures I've seen at Lalabella. Yes, this is particularly beautiful and they're also painted. Simon Warwick is a master stonemason also with the World Monuments Fund, a U.S.-based charity that preserves some of humankind's great achievements. Obviously we worked on the roof first. uh, Warwick has repaired European cathedrals and Roman antiquities But Lalabella is more complicated because of the sincere belief that angels worked this stone. Simon, you can't actually cut this stone in order to fit a new piece in because the stone you would be cutting is sacred. Yeah, this was was one of the first big issues that I I came across. If we ever had to drill a hole to strengthen it, to put in a pin, uh, we had to discuss it with the priests. Uh, They collected the dust. Uh, there, was a, there was a whole uh, procedure around touching the, the fabric of the church. The priest collected the dust? Yes. Yes. That was the issue when Warwick was asked to resurrect the cross in this window without disturbing the fragment that remained. So this cross wasn't was here? completely gone, yes. It was a very, very thin piece of stone remaining. And so I hollowed out the back of the cross shape that we were, we were inserting so that it was fitting over the original stone a bit like a like a dentist and so we were able to conserve this tiny bit of stone which is i mean stonemasonry terms it's, it's it's crazy but you have to do that in this kind of situation there have been other crazy conservation ideas a dozen years ago five umbrellas were built to keep the heavens from pouring down the local people call them gas station roofs And I think it's a pretty apt way of describing them. So you can imagine, we have this extraordinary site with some of the most beautiful buildings in the world, with extraordinary huge spiritual significance. And there's a bunch of gas station roofs that have been placed over the top of them. It's really not compatible, it's not appropriate. Unholy to behold, the roofs became a lesson in the law of unintended consequences. The churches were too wet, now they're too dry. For the first time in 900 years, they're not being rained on. Exactly right. And so the stone uh, is contracting much more than it has ever done before. And what happens is this creates little failures on a micro level, and the stone starts to crumble. The roofs were meant to be temporary, and in a few years, they must be recovered. Stephen Battle prays they'll be removed altogether and replaced by intensive maintenance. To that end, the World Monuments Fund is teaching conservation to dozens of Lalabella's priests and laymen in the hope that a host 
can protect the heavenly, perhaps for centuries to come. How long can they last? Well, another 900 years if they're looked after properly. Oh, yes, we're beyond a shadow of a doubt, absolutely, if they're looked after correctly. Even beyond another millennia, we're not likely to know with certainty the answer to why. Why attempt what must have seemed impossible? No answer was apparent until we chipped away at what we saw Christmas Day. In the Old Testament, Isaiah advises those who seek God to look to the rock from which you were cut and the quarry from which you were hewn. Whoever cut this rock, angels or man, understood that in the presence of a miracle, faith is never washed away. I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts.